Welcome to the King's Cast. Dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. A hearty welcome if you've downloaded this on iTunes. Uh, we're going to have a little competition in the room, which won't really work on iTunes, but, um, but we're going to do it in the room here. I want to uh, talk this morning on the topic really of, of, I suppose, on being a Christian, but I'll sort of come to that in just a moment. First of all, I'd like a show of hands here. In the, in the span of the Bible, so from Genesis through to Revelation, uh, the word Christian as a, as a term, either Christians or Christian, uh, appears a number of times. And um, this morning I want to just, just, just try to discuss that a little bit in a way that I hope will help us in our lives. Um, but let's just take a show of hands. How many of you think that the word Christian... In the Bible, I guess it would only be in the New Testament, right? Appears, say, let's start at uh, a minimum of 250 times. Just raise your hand. A minimum of 250 times. All right. Well, what about um, a minimum of 200 times? What about that? I think it might appear 200 times. Okay. No one's biting this. All right. Do you know what happens? Everyone's like looking around. If you've got tunnel vision, you'd be rubbish. You've got to look. Is he putting his hand up? He looks like he knows the Bible. Him. All right. Let's come down. What about a, what about a minimum of 75 times the word Christian in the Bible? Okay. Let me try another one. Hands up if you're not going to put your hand up no matter what. <laughs> A minimum of 50 times, anybody? Yeah? Okay, all right. Well, let's just get more reasonable then. A minimum of 30, 32 times. A minimum, 32. Yeah, okay. Hands up if you like some money. <laughs> yeah, okay. I just about got the level there. A minimum of 20 times. Anyone? Okay. Well, shall I tell you the answer? It appears three times. Three times. The word Christian appears three times. Now, of course, you could have got your smartphone out and done a quick, you know, look. Three times. It's amazing, isn't it? Because we use the word Christian quite often. Someone says to you, what religion are you? Oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Hopefully you say that. I'm a Christian. Uh, I hope you're not one of these strange people that gets your form and scrubs it out and goes, I'm of no religion. I've got a personal relationship with Jesus and write that on the form. But um, it only appears three times. Isn't that interesting in the whole Bible? And, in, and on each occasion that it is mentioned, 
There is something that it has in common on each three on each of the three times. On each three of each of the three occasions, it is a term of um, it's a term used by people who aren't Christians about Christians, and arguably, it's a term of abuse. Arguably, it's a term of uh, mockery. And so we're going to have a look at these and uh, draw some thoughts out of it. It only appears three times. Here they are. I'll just bring them up for you. First occasion, Acts 11, which we're going to look at in a moment. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Uh, That means they're the, the people were calling them that. They didn't call themselves that. They didn't get together. Didn't get the deacons together. Right, what should we call ourselves? They were called Christians by the other people in the, in the city. Uh, another occasion, Agrippa, that's the king, Jewish king, talking to Paul and he says to him, do you think you can persuade me to be a Christian? Uh, and finally, uh, Peter talking about the Christian life Uh, reflecting on all the persecution that the Christians were having at that time. And he says, if you suffer as a Christian, uh, don't be ashamed, praise God, that you bear that name. There's a little clue there. If he says that you are to praise God that you bear that name, uh, that sort of gives us a little clue, if you follow what I mean, that the name wasn't necessarily all that popular among them. They didn't want to be called that. Uh, but he says, no, 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 don't despise this name you're being given. Uh, praise God that you bear this name. So it appears three times. Only the world, you know, secular people call the people that. And thirdly, arguably, arguably, probably more likely than not, it's sort of a term uh, maybe not of abuse, but it's, it's a derogatory term. It's a term that's not necessarily very, uh, uh, very complimentary. Um, I don't suppose that people who believe in UFOs, they probably would like to be called, um, you know, uh, uh, explorers of the, of the dimensions of space rather than oh, you're one of the flying saucer people, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it's a little bit like that with this term Christian, at least it was 2,000 years ago. So what I want to do is look at each of these um, passages, and we probably won't get it all done today, but look at each of these passages where the term Christian is used and just see what it means there and uh, what are the implications of the word? And as you'll see, it has hopefully great relevance uh, to our lives today. Acts chapter 11 then. Let's uh, start there. Acts chapter 11. And we're reading from verse 19. Now, the, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, 
men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. Say that with me. The Lord's hand was with them. And and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Remember, we're going to be asking today, what, what is a Christian? At verse 24, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's Paul, of course, isn't it? And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, just reading on to the end. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. Verse 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So at this first place, the great revival in Antioch, if you like. Antioch was one of the great uh, centers of early Christianity. You have Jerusalem, of course. You have Ephesus later. But Antioch was, you know, the place to be. If there was a conference on it would be in Antioch. You understand? If there was going to be a TV, uh, Christian TV station, it would have been built at Antioch. If there was a famous pastor, he would have lived at Antioch. It was the, the, one of the great epicenters of early Christian faith and the, and, the, and the early church. And it's here that this word begins. Oh, these Christians are here. But when they said these Christians are here, What were they describing? Now, we could, of course, go into Greek and talk about little Christs or Christ-like ones or anointed ones. But that, uh, and maybe some of that is valid, but, but that's not what I want to do today. I just want to look at what was the character of these people? What were they doing? What was the character of the church at that time that, that provoked the people to say, these people are Christians? So, rather than one at a time, let me just bring all of these up and... Uh, and we'll look at them. First of all, they were a large community. They were not a tiny little group of people. They were a large uh, group of people. If you look in uh, verse 21, uh, uh, the Lord's hand was with them. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. You see that in verse 21? A great number of people. And then verse 24, speaking about Barnabas, 
it says at the end of the verse, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then verse 26, just before we get this, they were called Christians, it says that they, that's Barnabas and Paul or Saul, they taught great numbers of people. So the first characteristic, and in the words of X Factor, in no particular order, but in no particular order, the first characteristic was that there were loads of them there. They were a large number of people. And Christians are supposed to be a large number of people. Now, I appreciate that the grace of God is the mechanism by which people become Christians. And I appreciate that many people do not want Jesus. They do not accept the gospel. They do not believe the gospel for all manner of reasons. Some of them moral, some of them intellectual, etc., etc. And only God can open someone's heart. So I appreciate that uh, uh, not everyone is going to become a Christian. The Bible says, Jesus said himself, broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the road that leads to life. Nevertheless, we mustn't overemphasize that element because when the name Christian came into being, one of the characteristics was that there were loads of them. Loads of them. And they were a sizable group of people. And in fact, we're told that Barnabas, on his own, you know, single-handedly, listen now, single-handedly, he led a great number of people to Jesus. Single-handedly. So the same must be true for me and you then. That single-handedly, we have it within us, because of the Spirit of God, to lead large numbers of people to Jesus. Can you say amen? Now, I know that's a bit scary because it means we have responsibility and we, oh, no, I've got to do something now. It's so odd that evangelism in a church structure is one of the very few things that people are said to do rather than just be. And evangelism was never intended to be something that happened on a Saturday. It's intended to be something that happens every day, isn't it? That through our lives, we just want to you know, extend the gospel to others. And very often, and maybe it's a snare of the enemy even, it get, evangelism just gets relegated to, well, this, th these people do evangelism. Th you know, this one, he's crazy. He doesn't mind being punched. He'll go and do it. Or she'll go and do it, particularly in the middle of the night. Or, or, or they'll go and do it. Or they're gifted speakers. They'll go and do it. And evangelism becomes something that gets done. Oh, we're doing some evangelism on Saturday. Well, fair play. But I hope we don't just do Christian life on Tuesday afternoons. Hopefully we do Christian life Monday through Sunday. And similar with evangelism. We're not supposed to do evangelism. We're supposed to just be evangelists. Can you say amen? A great number of people. And I want you to... Uh, truly understand that throughout the United Kingdom, which is not in revival, there are loads and loads of people in church today. Right now, although some may have gone home already. But during the course of, you know, today, 
there will be millions and millions of people attending church. Now, that's not what it looks like on the TV. Is that right? It doesn't look like that on the TV. It doesn't look like that. But there are so many. And around the world, I printed this off yesterday. I got it off the internet, so it's bound to be true. But even if it's slightly out, well, it'll just be slightly out. Uh, Some of the top churches um, around the world, there's a whole list of them. We don't feature on it yet, but give us time. Give us time. Church in uh, India, 30,000 people meeting there this morning. In Honduras, 35,000. In Korea, uh, a single church there, 47,000 people attending that. Another one in India, between 40 and 80,000 people are there today. Church in Nigeria, 50,000 attending. Another one in Argentina, 70,000 attending. Uh, in just house churches, in the networks of house churches around the, around the uh, globe, a quarter of a million people meeting in those. Of course, the famous one in Seoul, Korea, uh, a mere 253,000 people attending that place today. It's just extraordinary. I could you know, go on and on. The United States, of course, some churches there, 25,000 people in attendance. Can you just imagine being a steward there and being told, can you sort the lose out? It's amazing. And we mustn't fall into this mindset that either the media wants to present to us or our enemy wants to present to us. That, you know, because you could go and drive around Cambridge and go into little chapels and there'd be four little old ladies huddled around a fire. Mind you, I might fancy that this morning. But, you know, small places and little groups and the idea that it's small, but it's not small because when you put it all together, it's enormous. It's enormous. I remember one time visiting a church in Brazil, in Belo Horizonte, and I arrived, we were brought to the front row actually, which I don't, I don't really like that sort of thing, but we were put on the front row because we were foreign, and boy, if that happened in England, everyone would be on the front row, huh? but uh, there was I on the front row because I was foreign, and I, suddenly the worship began, and I looked behind me, and there were, you know, many, many hundreds of people, but suddenly I thought, how are all these people making all this noise? And then I looked up, and there was a balcony, and then there was another balcony. And they all began to sing in perfect Portuguese, uh, Shout to the Lord, written by an Australian. But amazing, amazing sense of big, big numbers. So that's, that's one of the first things. It was a large community. Secondly, here, these people were dedicated to God. Verse 23, verse 26. In verse 23, it says this, when Barnabas arrived... He was encouraged, you know, and he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. True to the Lord with all of their hearts. And then we get this key verse, verse 26. The disciples were called Christians there. Why? Because they were true to the Lord with all their hearts. Let me just... Just turn this on its head a moment, just picking up something Jane said at the end of last week. The disciples were called Christians. Now today, what we sometimes have is Christians 
And among the Christians, a little group of what we might call disciples. Right? Are you with me? A little group who were more dedicated than everyone else. They really love God. They want to do the works of God. They are fully, wholeheartedly committed to God. And we tend to think, oh, these people are, they are disciples. They're genuine disciples. But everyone else, they're within a, like a Venn diagram of Christians. But that's not how it was in the beginning. Only the disciples were called Christians then. That's a scary thought, isn't it? It was, you, didn't, you didn't become a Christian by putting your hand up. You didn't become a Christian by saying a few words. You didn't become a Christian even by being baptized. You were called a Christian because you were a genuine disciple of the Lord. That the people who remain true to God with all their hearts. And that's how it ought to be today. That's why they were called Christians. Because they followed Christ. They didn't just show up, didn't fill out a, didn't fill out a, a form. What religion am I? What, 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 what do I, you know, what do I orientate uh, towards? I was saying this, and I don't want to cause any controversy, but I was just saying this earlier this week. I filled out a form this week on the, on the internet. It didn't ask me if I was male or female. It asked me, which of the genders do I more associate with? Well, I put I more associate with being male. Thank you. Which do I more associate with? I feel that out this week. You'd be pleased that I got the right answer, you know, but I... Extraordinary. It's not about a form. Am I a Christian? Tick, tick, tick. They were disciples. That's why they were called Christians. And maybe, without being... I'm not being harsh, but we just need a bit of a reality check sometimes. If we're not going to be a disciple, maybe we shouldn't call ourselves a Christian. Because maybe we don't... Maybe we don't merit such a term. They remained true to the Lord with all of their hearts. Thirdly here, they were supernatural people. We read here that the hand of the Lord was with them. And then at the end of the passage, it says that prophets showed up. I love it. Agabus showed up. And I love this in verse 28. Have a look at it. Verse 28 of Acts 11. One of them, named Agabus, stood up. Can you just imagine the scene? He stood up. Think, oh no, what's he going to say now? What is he going to say? And we need prophets like that today, don't we? People who stand up. You think, what's coming now? And by the way, I think we have such people, even among, even in this church. But something is going to come from God. He stood up. A little bit later on, he takes Paul's belt off. So he was a kind of an unusual guy. This Agabus. If a prophet comes through the door and wants to take my belt off, can the stewards please stop him? But in the New Testament, it was okay. But he, break, he gave prediction about a famine that was coming. And by the way, a famine that is historically documented. That's why Luke puts this little bit in. This was the famine that occurred during the reign of this, of this official. But they were supernatural. It's another reason why they were called Christians. The hand of the Lord was with them. Let me remind you of the prayer of the apostles in Acts 4 when they get together and they say, Lord, we need you to do miracles for us. 
to prove our message. He said, and they got together and they prayed, Lord, will you stretch out your hand to heal and to perform miracles through the name of your servant Jesus. The hand of the Lord is a term meaning a miraculous element. And it's no doubt that this is also true as the prophets began to speak. So the Christians were supernatural people. Genuinely supernatural people. Not, not pseudo-supernatural, but genuinely. And this is what a church ought to be. It shouldn't really be a surprise. It shouldn't really be a surprise for God to break in among us. It shouldn't really be a surprise to see answered prayer or cured bodies or, or provisions supplied. It shouldn't be a surprise. If God can speak through one of the prophets in this church and you feel as though God is speaking directly to me, we shouldn't be astounded by that because that's part of the DNA of what a Christian is. Empowered by God. And finally here, they spontaneously gave to those that were in need. During this prediction about the famine, look at verse 29 and look, see what happened. The disciples, not the leaders, hello? Not the leaders, the disciples, each according to his ability. So once again, the Bible is always clear about the giving of provision, that it should be done according to ability. You cannot give what you do not have. You find that throughout the scripture. But each according to his ability, they, they decided, not Barnabas, not Saul, but the disciples, you see, because they're real. They're the real thing. They decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And they brought it to these leaders and said, you know, go and do something with this. So why were they called Christians? Because of all these reasons. Their vast size. The fact that they were supernatural people. The fact that they were wholehearted. And the fact that they provided when there was a need. And they didn't need to be arm twisted. It, it, but Barnabas and Saul didn't show up at a meeting and say to the guy on the keyboard, can you play some emotionally stirring music? We need to raise an offering. How are we going to do it? Well, let's, let's send everyone a holy cloth that gives. Now, what, about a, what about getting people on a mailing list? Yes, that's a good idea. What about a life-size picture of Barnabas for their fridge? That's a good idea. And if they give a lot, they will put their name on a plaque on the building. I went into someone's house once and there were two statues of Smith Wigglesworth in his house. Now if you don't know who Smith Wigglesworth is, just, just take a moment with your mind, think about something else. I said, that's amazing. I said, where did you get them from? He said, well, he said, a TV preacher said, if I sent a gift, I would receive a statue. I thought, he's got two. <laughs> How'd you get two? I said, I sent two gifts. Sneaky. That's the way to do it. 
$50 at a time. No, they spontaneously cared for other people. And that should be in us. If we're a disciple, it should be in us to help people according to our ability, not, not, not if we don't have it. Of course Christians should give to children in need. Of course. Of course Christians should uh, support the ministry, but should also seek to help those who are in need. That's what this gift was all about. And it was spontaneous. No one phoned, didn't get an email from the church. They just did it. Why? Because they are Christians, that's why. Okay, let's look at another one. First Peter 4, let's go there. First Peter chapter 4, where we have another occurrence of this term. The real struggle. In Antioch, they were the, they were the real thing. They were the real thing. They were genuine believers. That's why they got their name. By the time of First Peter, which is something like 64, 65 AD, maybe the term Christian has become a derogatory term, as we said, and they're being, it's being used as a term of abuse because all throughout First Peter, he's talking about the difficulties they're facing, persecution, slander, uh, and the difficulties they, they are facing. First Peter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 12. And this is what Peter says to them. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. Many Christians are, by the way, when they go through difficulties because they've just read the wrong paperbacks. But you read the hardback truth, which, you know, the Bible, I mean, and you find that Christians struggle a lot. So don't, uh, don't submit yourself to the seven steps to having no problems. Um, uh, ideas, because there's no such thing. You'd just be disappointed, because he says you shouldn't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. You know, what, what, how come it, things aren't working out? How come uh, you know the doors aren't opening? How come I'm not healed yet? How come the things haven't worked out? He says, no, don't don't be worried about that, particularly because since they became a Christian. They, they came under a lot of abuse and trouble from the local community. But he says, verse 13, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And now the key verse, 14, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. For it is time, rather, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should can commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Okay, so here's the second instance of this word. And once again, I'll just bring them all up. Here 
are the elements that we find attached to these verses that we just read. They were a suffering people. And uh, I don't think that this should be placed in the small print of the Christian faith. I'm not necessarily saying it should be placed in bold print, but it shouldn't be hidden away. And sometimes, and this is a, a, a topic we come back to again and again here at King's Church, sometimes when you hear evangelists talking to people, I once uh, saw a poster, it was in a magazine, and it said something like this, so-and-so, Bob Sparrow or whatever, I, I really hope now there isn't a Bob Sparrow, uh, someone will Google it before the end of the meeting. But, um, you know, Brother Bob is going to be sharing in so-and-so town hall. And it said something like this. Jesus will take all your problems away. Wow. I thought, I'm a pastor. I wouldn't mind going to that meeting. Find out what's happening there. Jesus will take all your problems away. Now, I don't know about you, but since I became a Christian, I found that a whole lot of problems I had have gone away. But there's more. They have been replaced with a whole new set of problems that I didn't have before. The fact that I'm a Christian is an expensive business, and it's the same for you. Especially if you are a public Christian. I don't mean someone like me, but I mean if you are open about your faith. If you're a secret Christian, well, you, you have a different kind of life. But if you're an open Christian, you're open about your faith, you will find not so much that all your problems have gone away. Your main problem has gone away, but you'll find a whole lot of other problems are now in your life. People treat you oddly. They think you're one of the flying saucer people. They may not invite you to certain things. Uh, you may find that uh, when you're not in the staff room, people are chatting about you. Uh, you may find uh, you get rejected by your family or you may find you have difficulty, maybe even difficulty in, in interviews and things like that. I had a, a friend of mine call me up and he's embarking on a whole new um, career. Uh, but I said to him, I said, how are the interviews going? He said, well, we act this fine. He said, but when they hear I've been a Christian, uh, it causes me a problem. I said, wow, boy, oh boy. And so you find that Jesus doesn't take all your problems away. And in fact, if you do Christianity properly, you're going to find that you have some more problems. Why were these people in this book of Peter, why were they struggling and why were they getting abuse and slander? Because they were upfront about their faith. Now, now, we're not talking about being a, a bigot. We're not talking about being a Pharisee. I remember, and I better be careful what I say here, but I remember one guy, he came to me in a church I was pastoring many years ago, maybe not in this county, and uh, he came and sat with me and said, they're, they're giving me trouble at work because I'm a Christian. I said, oh dear, what are you doing? He said, well, he said, I'm a security guard. 
and uh, they don't like me doing Bible study while I'm on duty. <laughs> really. And he would sit there re- doing his NIV study notes, and you know, burglars, they're all breaking in, and there's TVs coming out, you know, Levant. Well, I jest, but you know, he, his mind wasn't on his, you know, job. And uh, if you're going to go into work and, uh, you know, uh, sing in tongues, you know, in the office, then of course people are going to think you're a bit strange. In fact, I might think you're a bit strange. But we're talking about they were getting difficulty because they were Christians. Well, it's part of it. Jesus said, if they hated me, then they're going to hate you. If they've rejected me, then they're going to reject you. And some people may get themselves rejected unnecessarily because we remember that Titus says we should make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So always bear that scripture in mind. But nevertheless, sometimes when we take a stand, we get into trouble for it, don't we? Am I telling the truth? Say amen. Yeah, sometimes we get into trouble because of what we stand for. That's all part of it. That's what it's like to be called a Christian. They continued, however, to do good. I love that. Verse 19, the final part. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. There can be a real temptation when we're getting difficulty, you know, to pull back. There can be a real temptation. But he says, I want you to continue to do good. The second one here, we find there are people of joy and of praise. Verse 13, Peter used this word, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And then verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Moving on to the next one. We find that they're being disciplined by God himself. He says in verse 17, if it's time, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's amazing to me that part of being a Christian involves being disciplined by God. Now perhaps I shouldn't just throw this out as a final thought today. Because it's a whole several hours discussion all by itself. But let's have a taster of it. If you are a Christian, then you are submitting yourself to the father, uh, the, the fathering oversight of God over your life. And it's sometimes very tricky. Do you know that God won't let you get away With anything. He works on us. We'll be standing, we'll be completely happy. Standing in a worship service, singing a song. And as we're singing the song, a conviction comes upon us. really need to apologize for what I've done or I I cannot 
have this unforgiveness in my heart. And you came to church because you were told it was happy and clappy. And now you're clappy but unhappy. We should put that outside. Welcome to this unhappy and clappy church. Unhappy meaning that God is bringing his fire into our lives. God promises all the way from Genesis to Revelation to test us. Now this isn't something that's happening necessarily to your mate at work. It's happening to you. This isn't something necessarily that's happening to your family members. But it's happening for you. You're under the discipline of God. And sometimes we can be like a kid. Getting to the end of a school year. And thinking, praise God. That I'm going to go into a new class next year. Because this form teacher is tricky. I just want to go to a, a nicer class. Well, I can get away with anything I want. But in his class, boy, oh boy. In my school, we had a teacher called Mr. Ward. Mr. Ward. He was the most terrifying teacher in our school. And do you know what? He even lived two minutes from where I lived. Before you went into his class, you were already terrified of him. He had a reputation of banging Kids' hands with his ruler. He had a reputation. By the way, I'm sure none of this was ever true. And if it is, he really needs to be arrested. But he had a reputation of being able to throw his ruler across the room and hit kids in the head, you know, at the back. And he would walk around banging the desks. But I'm not talking about 19th century Britain now. I'm talking about the 1970s. Scary. And you know what he taught? The most useless subject ever. Now forgive me, Mr. Ward. If you're listening on iTunes. But Mr. Ward, you're probably a bit old now, aren't you? And you probably don't know what iTunes is. Do you know what he taught? Maths? Science? English? No. He taught meteorology. Is that the study of weather? Someone help me. Yeah. A load of rubbish. I don't know if it's sunny or rainy. No, I don't need to know about that. But he was terrifying. And all he wanted to do was get out of his class. Just got to get out of his class. There was another teacher. Miss Elphingstone. You do anything in that class. In Miss Elphingstone's class, you could get up with a ruler and bang it around the desks. You could lock Elphinstone in the cupboard. She wouldn't mind. Now, God is immensely loving, you know. So he's got a lot of Miss Elphinstone in him. But he's got quite a lot of Mr. Ward in him. And by that, I mean, not that he's throwing rulers at people. But God is a God of order, isn't he? And he wants order in our lives. And so he sends his fire. 
And that's what was happening to them. The fiery ordeal they were facing. To be a Christian means that we are open to being disciplined by God. And the standard of my life is not defined by Oprah. It's not defined by Jeremy Kyle. It's defined by God. And that is a lofty attainment, isn't it? Because I'm so fallen. But that's what he says to them. You're suffering as a Christian. And then he goes on to say, judgment begins in the house of God. I think some people move from church to church and they're looking for St. Elphingstone's Parish. Listen, I'm telling you. I'm looking for St. Elphingstone's where if I'm feeling in a naughty mood I can lock God in a cupboard and carry on the way I want. Nobody wants to come to St. Ward's. But no, as a Christian, we can't do what we want. We are not free to indulge in all sorts of things. God becomes our father, you see. They say that teenagers love to have boundaries. Now, to be fair, I've never met one. You heard that? Oh, these teenagers, they love it when there's rules. I don't know about that. But that's what they say, so it must be true. But God, with God, there are boundaries. And actually, we do grow to love them. Take away the traffic lights. Take away the speed restrictions. Take away law. They end up in chaos. Take away right and wrong. You end up with London on fire. With masked kids. With TVs on their back. No, God is a God of order. That's what it means to be a Christian. To have submitted myself. To say, God, search me. And see if there be any evil way in me. Psalm 139 that we read this week. And finally there are people of the spirit. Just rejoice because the, the, uh, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There it is in verse 14. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask myself just because I'm up here with a microphone doesn't change me to you. I have to ask myself, am I really living as a Christian? Am I living like this? Do I deserve that name? Or do I begin to merit that name? Supernatural. Devoted to God with all of my heart desiring to win many people to the Lord being a disciple and all these things here 
enduring suffering, but doing good anyway. Accepting the the discipline of God and praising him all the way through it. It's a challenge for me. First and foremost, before before it comes out of my mouth to you. There's a final reference to being a Christian, but we'll look at it next week. Thank you for listening, and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church, or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless, and goodbye.